1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Amanpour. Here's what's coming up. Folks, I promise you, I'm just getting started. President Biden ramps up his re election campaign, and I asked Democratic political strategist Simon Rosenberg why he believes the party is stronger than people think. And. Despite U.S. and U.K. strikes, the Houthis launched new attacks in the Red Sea. I ask a Yemeni political analyst if this Iran proxy can be controlled. Then. Why
2: do parents still continue to subject their children to the spin?
1: A report on the brutal practice of female genital mutilation and the brave activists fighting to end it.
3: Also ahead. A single thing can tip you over that edge and create... An extremely consequential event that shifts how the world works.
1: Fluke, chance, chaos, and why everything we do matters. Political scientist Brian Klass tells Walter Isaacson about what the chaos theory can teach us. Welcome to the program, everyone. I'm Christiana Amanpour in London. A legal blow for Donald Trump's presidential campaign, a federal appeals court rules that he does not have presidential immunity and can be prosecuted for trying to reverse the 2020 election. After winning Iowa and the New Hampshire Geo primaries, he is a shoo-in as their nominee, while President Biden is tipped to win Nevada's Democratic primary today. He notched up his first official victory in South Carolina three days ago, winning over 96% of the vote. The president touted his successes at a campaign rally in Las Vegas over the weekend, running on the message of promises made, promises kept. He also admitted, though, there is work to be done.
0: I know, we know, we have a lot more to do. Not, ev- not everyone's feeling the benefits of our investments and in progress yet. But inflation is now lower in America than any other major economy in the world. In the world.
1: And that is a fact. As are many other key indicators which are in his favor. Yet the political landscape shows gyrating poll numbers. Is this normal this far away from an election? And what kind of hard work does Biden have still to do? Key Democratic strategist Simon Rosenberg puts Biden's chances for re election higher than most. And he's joining me now from Washington, D.C. Uh, Simon Rosenberg. Welcome, Simon Rosenberg. Welcome to the program. Um, You know, I'm watching this and everybody overseas is watching this and you can imagine America's allies for all sorts of policy reasons are very keen uh, to know that President Biden will be reelected for all sorts of rules of the international world order. What do you say to them when they look at polls, for instance?
4: Sure. I mean, I think, look, my basic take on the election is that Joe Biden is a good president. The country is better off. The Democratic Party is strong and been winning elections all across the country. And the Republicans are fielding the most unfit candidate in our history who has. And and so I feel good about where things are. There has been a lot of o- overestimation of Republican strength and underestimation of Democratic strength in recent elections. And so when I put all this together and I was very accurate about what happened in 2022, I would much rather be us than them. And I think it's far more likely that we win than the Republicans this year. Tell us again about 2022. Sure. So here's the way to think about this. Since Trump became clearly MAGA in the 2017-2018 Congress. He, the Republicans have struggled terribly in elections. We had a great election in 2018. We had a great election in 2020. We unseated an incumbent president and won the Senate, which was hard to do in our system. And then something very unusual has happened. And in our system, when the party, the party in power always loses seats uh, when, they're, when they have the presidency, they lose congressional seats, they lose Senate seats, they lose state legislative chambers all across the country. And in the last two years, the exact opposite has happened. Something historic. We've defied history. We had an extraordinary midterm where we actually gained a Senate seat. We gained governorships. We gained uh, state legislative chambers all across the country. And then in 2023, we actually did better than we did in 2022. And we won in places like Ohio and Wisconsin that are that are difficult places for Democrats to win. And so. Since Dobbs, and it's my view that something really broke inside the Republican Party in the spring of 2022, and that since Dobbs happened, the decision to end Roe v. Wade, there's been a basic fundamental dynamic in our politics that's played out again and again in election after election, which is that Democrats are overperforming expectations and polls and Republicans are underperforming. And you're Mm -hmm. even seeing that start to play out here in early 2024.
1: I'm going to get into some of those detailed yeah. uh, data in a second, but first I want to ask you about the news yeah. because one of the main things you say Trump is a less attractive character yeah. and candidate today than he was in 2016. Now, one of those things that Democrats feel is unattractive, but his supporters do not feel, is the 91 counts and the four <laughs> indictments that he has leveled against him. And now that the Federal Appeals Court has has denied his uh, desire to be given presidential immunity, saying that he is not immune and that he can be uh, prosecuted with all the rights of a defendant, uh, that he's just citizen Trump. Do you think that will impact, you know, whoever needs to be impacted? Obviously, it's potentially MAGA voters will, you know, come out for him as they have done in the past.
4: Yeah, but I think what we're seeing in the early polling in Iowa and New Hampshire, which is what, which is important because it's where voters really had to pay attention, where ads were running, where the candidates were campaigning, those the views that we saw in the polling in those early states really matter for 2024. And what we saw in both states was a sizable chunk of the Republican electorate, 20-30% depending on the way you look at it who were unenthusiastic about ever supporting Trump, that if he had been, if it was known that he was a criminal or that, um, you know, the, the, all the problems that he's had. I mean, in, in, in Iowa, Nikki Haley's voters, more Nikki Haley voters, which was 20% of the electorate, said they would back Biden than Trump. We've never had polling like that in in generations in America, where one set of voters in one party were so willing to support the voter, you know, the candidate of the other party. Trump has demonstrated a lot of very early weakness. The turnout in Iowa was anemic, far less than they expected. There was not a lot of enthusiasm for him there. In New Hampshire, he came in 10 to 15 points below public polling and underperformed dramatically in New Hampshire, he's had two very weak performances so far, and this goes back to my basic take, which is that when people are actually voting in election after election all across the U.S. since the spring of 2022, We've done better than expected and Republicans have struggled. And I think there is, I think that Donald Trump is a far weaker candidate today than he was in 2016 or 2020 for a whole host of reasons, right? His performance has diminished. But importantly, getting to what you were asking, Christine, I'll do this quickly, is that there's going to be six things that voters know about him in this election that they didn't know about him in 2020. One that he raped a woman in a department store dressing room. That's been litigated and decided by a jury of his peers. Second is he committed massive financial fraud which is about to be, you know, finalized here in, in the next few days. Third is that he led an insurrection and he's promised now to end American democracy for all time. Fourth, that he, uh, that he stole America's secrets, lied about it to the FBI and shared those secrets with other people. Fifth, that his family's taken more money from foreign governments than any political family in American history. And finally, he singularly was responsible for ending Roe. We have six disqualifying events that have happened that we're going to be able to use as people in politics to be able to push him further and further away from the electorate, which is why I'm so optimistic that we can win this election this year.
1: So with all that data that you've
4: just given us,
1: would you explain then for people who are completely confused about the polls? Why then do polls give him such a lead sometimes, a little bit of a lead other times, Biden a little? I mean, it's It's really difficult to understand what the lay of the land is.
4: I agree with that. And I don't envy anybody trying to figure out our crazy system from abroad. This is a hard thing for those of us in the system every day to make sense of. But the way to think about it is the polling is showing today, to be fair, a close competitive election. Trump, Trump is not definitively ahead. I mean, if you just in the last 10 days, there have been four... Major national polls showing Biden actually gaining significantly, and three of them he's actually substantially ahead. So the way I view it is we're looking at a close competitive election today, which is not surprising, because one party is having a real primary. The other party, our party, isn't really having a real primary. It's not surprising that Republican voters are showing up more in the polling, that there's more intensity for Republicans in the polling, which is, I think, making the polling a little bit more Republican than it would be, than it will be in, let's say, three or four months when Democratic voters recognize that it's going to be Trump and Biden and it's going to be time to engage. You know, we've had this very unusual thing where one party is having an election, the other party really isn't at the end of the day. And so the polling has been a little bit more Republican than I think it will be. But we'll see. Look, we have Mm -hmm. a lot of work to do. I'm not sitting here being Pollyannish and telling you everything's going to be great. You know, we've got work to do to win this election, but I would be, you know, where I'm sanguine about, about what. What we're seeing is that I do believe that once the ads start and the shooting starts in our system, we have a strong, Joe Biden has a very strong argument to make for reelection. The country is clearly better off than when he came to office. And Republicans have the most unfit, disgraced person to run for president in our history. I think we should be able to win this election.
1: So the ads have started, and yeah. the opposition and people are saying that one of the biggest issues, if not the biggest, basically yeah. it's the economy and the border, immigration. Yeah. So I want to ask you about the current, I don't know what to call it, the current <laughs> debacle in Congress over <laughs> the Democrats agreeing to a very far-reaching immigration in order to have uh, the aid to Ukraine and Israel uh, yeah. unblocked, and yet... Now the Senate and certainly the House are not going to pass it. So this is what uh, uh, former Vice President Al Gore said to me about this particular issue. And I wanted to get your take afterwards. Yeah.
3: Now Donald Trump says, oh, uh, uh, no, no, don't do that uh, because the worst things are the better my chances in the election. So don't solve this crisis. If you balance the interests of the United States of America against this petty political desire to have a a disaster to enhance uh, the, the election results, that's a pretty easy choice to make, isn't it?
1: So what is your take? Do you think the Republicans will be blamed for scuttling a border deal, an immigration deal that was very uh, kind to the conservatives as it's been, you know, as it's been reported or not?
4: I think it's really important for political observers abroad to understand that the Republicans are not necessarily operating in a place based on polling and strategy. Their leader is an impulsive, out of control you know, uh, you know, diminished figure. And I think what you're seeing is that this is a sign of desperation for them. They know they're, they know that he's damaged goods. They haven't been performing well in the elections. Their, their party is broke and out of money. They're having enormous issues with the operations of the party. He's getting crushed in the courts right now. Um, and so I think this is a sign of desperation because the, the biggest challenge the Republicans have right now is that all their major talking points against Joe Biden? The economy was terrible. That's not true. Inflation's too high. That's no longer true. Crime is rising. That's not true. Uh, he's waged a war on energy. That's not true, right? The core of their indictments of Biden have all evaporated because of Biden's success as president. So what they were left with was this border stuff. And now they've actually done something that I think is incredible, which is they're going to be campaigning on this idea that they want more immigrants to come into the country, the border being chaos, and they want Putin to win in Russia. Good luck trying to run on that platform in this country at this point. It's an absurdity. So this area where they had an advantage over us, I think they're blowing it. And they're now giving us the ability to bludgeon them with not solving a problem that they have argued aggressively is a huge crisis. So I think the key here to recognize is that nothing you're witnessing here coming from the Republican Party right now is from strength and power and confidence. It's desperation. They're weak. They're losing the election, in my view, or will lose the election. And they're starting to do crazy things. And so it's impo- That's how I see this playing out. I am shocked at what the Republicans have done in the last couple of days. They've come out against the border You know, the border union, which is a core right-wing part of their coalition, has come out for the deal. The Wall Street Journal today editorial page came out for the Senate deal. I mean, they're now going up against core parts of their coalition. And this is why I think the last thing I'll say about this is I think the way to think about what we're seeing in the early days is the Republican Party is splintering in the United States. The coalition is splintering. The non-MAGA part of the party, which is 20, 30 percent didn't go along with Republican, Trumpy Republican candidates in 2022. They didn't go along with Trumpy Republican candidates in 2023. And I think they're going to really struggle to go along with this super Trumpy candidate in 2024.
1: And just finally, so that it doesn't sound too Pollyannish, You said work has got to be done and Biden has said work has got to be done. There is a feeling that the message that you're articulating is not being articulated by his people, by him yet, (laughs) even to the point that that he's not he's going to sit out uh, an incredible exposure. And that is the Super Bowl interview where presidents usually, you know, get their chance to have a pretty friendly interview.
4: So I I will just say that I I think the Biden campaign is not as far along as I think many of us would like. And that, you know, given the gravity of this election and given Trump's capacity to create noise and distraction and dictate the daily discourse in the United States, we're going to have to be very loud and very aggressive. And I worked in the Clinton war room in 92 and, you know, I was you know, trained as a young information warrior, as we call it, in our politics. And we're gonna we've got we're up against a very loud and noisy machine on the other side and we've gotta start getting loud and being aggressive. And I think the Biden campaign is slowly, you know, getting to the point where it needs to be. I don't think they're gonna be fully and up and running for another six to eight weeks, which in our system is a long time. I know for many countries, the entire election is six to eight weeks. Um, But I think you're gonna start to see by March, you're gonna start to see really the full general election campaign. And it's, and I think, you know, look, I think that Biden has a very strong case For re-election. I think we, I assume that we're going to hear the beginnings of the second term agenda in the State of the Union in early March. And you put Biden up, the slow and steady leadership, workhorse, not a show horse, clearly made the country better against this wild, unfit, you know, crazy party. I I think we should, you know, my view is having done this now for more than 30 years, we should win this election in 2024. We should flip the House. The Senate will be up for grabs until the very end, but I'm very bullish on our chances. This year, Re- really interesting perspective,
1: Simon Rosenberg, Democratic strategist. Thank you. Thank you so much.
5: I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life,
2: I'm a health reporter and have been for 15 years. And even I feel overwhelmed by some of the things I read about the stuff we're eating.
5: My colleague Meg Terrell wanted to take a deep dive into something you've probably heard a lot about recently: ultra-processed foods. There is a lot to learn there, some fascinating stuff, and some of it is probably going to change the way you shop. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts.
1: We go now to the war in Gaza, where U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken continues his shuttle diplomacy through the Middle East, trying to reach a ceasefire and a hostage deal between Israel and Hamas. He is now in Qatar, where at a press conference, the prime minister says Hamas has given a positive response to a framework agreement. And here's what Blinken said in response to that.
4: Together with Qatar and Egypt... We put forward, as you know, a serious proposal that was
0: aimed at not simply repeating the previous agreement, but expanding it.
5: Uh, As the Prime Minister just said, Hamas responded tonight.
4: We're reviewing that response now, uh, and I'll be discussing it with the Government of Israel tomorrow. There's still a lot of work to be done, but we continue to believe that an agreement is possible and, indeed, essential.
1: Hamas has also put out a long statement saying that it has dealt with the proposal in, quote, a positive spirit. Meanwhile, it also announced that a senior commander was killed over the weekend in an Israeli airstrike on a property in Deir al-Bala, in the center of the Gaza Strip, along with 13 members of his family. Our correspondent, Nader Bashir, has more on the fighting in this area, where more civilians were killed in a separate attack on a mosque. And we know, of course, there is a humanitarian disaster there and a climbing death toll, and you'll find some of these images disturbing.
6: Surrounded by chaos and panic, the wounded lay quiet. This little girl's pain, masked by shock. It is all too much. This mother shields her child's eyes from horror, telling him, don't look. In the morgue at the Al-Aqsa Martyrs Hospital, the bodies of those who did not survive lay shrouded on the ground, the tiles beneath still bloodied. (laughs) A doctor and eyewitnesses say at least 14 people were killed as a result of a series of airstrikes by the Israeli military on this mosque in Deir al-Balah in central Gaza. In response to questions from CNN, the Israeli military says it takes feasible precautions to mitigate civilian harm in its war on Hamas. Locals here are left to sift through the rubble, retrieving fragments of bodies. Those killed said to have been leaving the mosque following morning prayers.
7: This neighbourhood is full of people who have been displaced,
0: all taking shelter in schools. Clearly, there's nowhere safe anymore, not on mosques, not on schools, not in the streets. Nowhere in Gaza is safe. But
6: just as there is no escape from the airstrikes, it seems there is also no escape from grief. The families of Gaza's latest victims, old and young, left to share in their unending mourning. Elsewhere in this hospital in central Gaza, At least 20 women and children have arrived seeking safety, forced to flee once again, after being ordered by the Israeli military to evacuate their shelter in Gaza City.
2: The Israelis came and surrounded
7: us with tanks. We were not able to go out. There was no food, no drinks, no water. We were not even able to turn on the lights. We were scared they would see us. They took all the men and started beating them. They stripped their clothes off and took them to the tanks. After that, they told all the women to go down to the basement and they deployed explosives. They wanted to lock us in and then blow up the whole building. They wanted to kill us. We told them that we are civilians, that there are children with us, that we have done nothing
6: to deserve this. We begged them, and then they agreed to let us out. Troubling accounts like this, shared with CNN by several women forced to flee central Gaza. The Israeli military has admitted it is detaining, questioning and stripping people it has identified as, quote, terror suspects, but says they are treated in accordance with international law. The military did not, however, respond to questions around the women's other allegations. What comes next for these families and for all in Gaza is unclear. But there is little hope left. In Rafah, Now home to more than a million Palestinians, tent cities for the displaced continue to grow. This region, once said to be a safe zone, now facing relentless airstrikes. Israel's defense minister has warned that troops will soon enter the southern city. They say targeting terrorist infrastructure. But there are deepening fears over the potential for a humanitarian catastrophe and the looming threat of untold bloodshed in the South. Nader Bashir, CNN in London.
1: And just to note, since Hamas killed and slaughtered 1,200 people on October 7th inside Israel, civilians mostly, There have been, uh, according to the Palestinian health authorities, 27,000 Palestinians killed uh, since October 7th. Now, we turn to wider regional tensions. Yemen's Houthi leader vows further escalation if the war on Gaza doesn't stop. They claim their attacks on Red Sea shipping are in solidarity with the Palestinian people there, and continued U.S. and U.K. strikes have not deterred them. The Houthis certainly have experience in weathering these strikes under years of a Saudi-led campaign against them. Hisham al-Omaisi knows this group very well because in 2017, they detained him in the capital Sana'a and held him for months. He's joining us now with some analysis from Washington, D.C. Welcome to the program. Before I ask you about your particular, you know, encounter with them, tell us a little bit about who the Houthis are and why, after now weeks of attacks against, you know, against their military emplacements, it hasn't deterred them.
5: Thank you. Uh, Well, to begin with, the Houthis are a rebel group. They're a theocratic police state. And they've been hoping for this opportunity, for this confrontation with the U.S., For a while now, for almost 30 years, they've been claiming that they've been fighting the colonial imperialist powers in the region. So this actually provided them with a golden opportunity. And the strikes are not that effective against them. If anything, it's actually fueling their anger. It's actually galvanizing them, but also because their weaponry is very dispersed across mountainous ranges. And they're also locally producing some of those missiles. Yes, components are coming from Iran. Components are coming from elsewhere. The trainers are coming from Hezbollah. But again, they have the local capacity to rebuild and restock those piles. So we are stuck in a loop of tit-for-tat that can go on for a very long period of time. And, of course, after the U.S. strikes on uh, Iraq and Syria
1: and on the Iran-backed militias there over the weekend, uh, you know, everybody's talking about how much uh, control and direction Iran gives to its proxies in the so-called axis of resistance. So from your experience, what are the relative uh, you know, dependencies of these proxies on Iran?
5: I think there's a bit of exaggeration because a lot of people claim that Iran has uh, very strong control uh, over the Houthis when in fact the Houthis have a longer leash. The Houthis, yes, they're very well backed by the Iranians. They owe their rise to the Iranians. But the thing is that they also have their own mindset. They follow the same playbook. Uh, they are they organize under the same axis of resistance, but they have their own objectives, their own goals. And this is why they've been uh, basically expanding within Yemen. They've been adopting their own narratives. They have their own religious tone, rhetoric, and also they have their own command and control centers that are dispersed across Yemen, which is also making it really difficult for the U.S. and the U.K. to kind of debilitate their their military uh, locally. But again, Iran, though backs the, the Houthis, it does not fully control the Houthis.
1: And can I ask you, because a lot of people, including in the United States, are busy receiving Houthi information war propaganda, whatever you want to say, TikTok videos and the lot, they have really managed to penetrate in the, you know, really indispensable sphere, which is the information war. How on earth did that happen from one of the most impoverished and, and, you know, I mean, it's just... Yemen has been through so much. It's been bombarded. It's terribly poor. It has, you know, its people survive on international assistance. How does that develop one of the most sophisticated propaganda machines in this war?
5: Because you have to remember, you're talking about Yemen. As as you mentioned, we're going through a humanitarian crisis where almost 80% of the population is in need of aid. There's a high level of illiteracy, but also it's a very tribal area. And, And on top of that, People have went through a devastating nine-year war. Grievances are deep. Emotions are high. Houthis are actually really good at weaponizing those grievances, at basically pinning every Yemeni issue, Yemen's woes, against external foes. And where, in a country, people are not big fans of foreign interventions, it is very easy to make them coalesce around and fight against the, local, the, the foreign um, invader, if you will, the colonial imperialists. And this is why the Houthis were very good at uh, basically painting the U.S., the U.K., as they call it, the greatest Satan, and pitching themselves as the vanguards of the Muslim and the Arab nation. The events in Gaza actually kind of fueled also that narrative because now to Yemenis, being bombarded with these images that are coming out of Gaza, with women, children suffering, dying, the Houthis turn around and tell the Yemenis, see what the West is doing. This is the real face of the West. Come and fight with us against these imperialists, against these colonials. And of course, they kind of add some religious uh, text, some uh, Quranic verses to it as well, to kind of heighten those emotions and galvanize support and also recruit, uh, enhance their recruitment drives. Mm-hmm. And that worked very well for them.
1: Yeah, uh, Hisham al-Omessi, as you know better than I do, there is a, a massive unresolved fight between the Houthis and the other group, which is the internationally recognized group. Um, and... and You you came a cropper, right? How did you run afoul of the Houthis when you were in Yemen, and what happened to you? What kind of people are they? What kind of an opposition were they before all of this?
5: The Houthis are really good at capturing opportunities. The way they actually came into Sana'a and hijacked the government was riding on a popular wave of discontent. We had a lot of issues with the local government. There was a lot of nepotism, a lot of corruption. The Houthis came in and promised social and structural reform. But when they came in, they became the very monster they promised to fight against. And they became a very repressive regime. And when they took over, they promised equality. They promised to fight poverty. But they actually brought over poverty. They actually brought over crime. They actually brought over repression and when I was in Sana'a and I was basically kind of pointing out towards facts like we are suffering, 80% of the population is suffering, but the Houthis are eating well. They're driving Rolls Royces. Uh, They're living lavishly. And I got multiple warnings uh, from the Houthis and their followers that I should keep my mouth shut, that I should also focus on the Saudi-led coalition, because the Saudi-led coalition was also actually committing a lot of crimes also in Yemen with the bombardment of schools, orphanages, basic infrastructure, but I also wanted to highlight the issues with the Houthis, and that did not sit well with them. Uh, They tolerated that for a while, but eventually they basically kidnapped me and forcibly disappeared me. Mm. And this is happening now again. This is the thing. Everybody's focusing on the Houthis and what they're doing, coming to the defense of Gaza, which is fine, but the thing that does not basically should not whitewash What the Houthis have done and continue to do, the Houthis are again riding a popular wave of discontent. Now, not just locally, regionally, with the events in Gaza, with the lack of action in Gaza. But what people need to understand is that they also have their own ulterior motives. They have their own agendas, and they're trying to achieve their own goals. Mm -hmm. This is not just about coming to the aid of Gaza.
1: Hisham al thank you very much indeed for that analysis. Turning now to a brutal practice still carried out around the world, including in Yemen, female genital mutilation. This is International Day of Zero Tolerance for FGM, and we're focusing on Sierra Leone, West Africa, where more than 80% of women and girls have gone through it. But in this special report for CNN's As Equals, correspondent David McKenzie meets an activist who's battling to change that. And of course, we must note that viewers will find some of these images disturbing.
7: Across Sierra Leone, there's a hidden horror. What's happening?
2: We are going to Cambia, and there is an incident of a young girl that died after initiation.
7: We're travelling with activist Rugia Ture. Her life's work is ending female genital mutilation or FGM. Traditionally, the cutting is kept secret in the initiation to the all-female Bondo Society, a society that is a rite of passage for girls and young women, where they also learn valuable skills from members.
2: Somebody grabbed me at the back and they sit me naked.
7: Toure was excited about joining the Bondo Society. When she was just 11, she learned the truth.
2: The sharp cut, I started fighting. And when I woke up, I saw my sisters, the two of them on the floor bleeding. I could not walk for seven days because I lost so much blood.
7: Did you already think then that this should stop?
2: It was from that experience that I started talking to my friends. Good morning, good morning.
7: Talking to anyone who will listen.
2: Just yesterday, we got this information about this 13-year-old girl.
1: In the holding
7: cells, the girl's own mother. Police arrested her, the cutter, or soe, and her grandmother. Arrests like these in Sierra Leone are extremely rare. In the village where she died, most have fled, afraid of the police, afraid of the consequences. Salomatu Jolo was just 13. Police believed she bled to death. She's been here alone for four days.
2: When
7: I went inside and saw my daughter's body, I felt devastated, says her father. I didn't feel good. I'm confused. The stench is all over here. <sighs>
2: Why do parents still continue to subject their children to the spin? Parents that I know love their children so much and they always protect them.
7: And why do they?
2: They looked at the cutting as being the bundle itself.
7: To separate the two, ture and her organization go village to
2: village.
7: She targets the SOEs who are paid to cut, trains them in new skills. Convincing them to put down their knives and lead bloodless Bondo ceremonies. Toure is slowly succeeding, where for decades international organizations have failed.
2: You cannot fight something you are not part of. I am part of the community. I know what they do. I know. I talk out of experience. They understand me.
6: I understand them. I run away for, because my mother and my aunt want me to join the, the Bondo bit courts.
7: It's still up to brave young women like Titi Sese to resist the social pressure and to convince others as well. But the UN still estimates more than 80% of women and girls have gone through FGM here.
6: The third is a tradition. I said this tradition is very wicked. This is a wicked tradition.
7: It's a huge mountain to climb still. Do you think you can climb that mountain?
2: In Sierra Leone, we've gone too far climbing the hills. We've gone too far.
7: Going far, building schools to educate and empower young girls. Helping Soe's lead the charge to a better tradition. Celebrating protecting their sisters and daughters.
2: We will climb the mountain and all of us will be at the mountain top. to so say FGM has end and it
1: will end in our generation as we speak. David McKenzie there with such an important story. And as we know, FGM still continues, even in the West, in some local communities. And there's a big battle by activists to stop it. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Celebrities of all kinds are speaking publicly about their therapeutic trips, so to speak. It turns out there is a burgeoning industry ready to serve the new influx of people who find themselves turning away from traditional mental health therapy. The gap between what we know and what we don't about psychedelic therapy. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Next, how does randomness shape our lives from the personal to the geopolitical? Brian Klass, a political scientist and professor at University College London, is the author of the new book, Fluke, Chance, Chaos and Why Everything We Do Matters. Walter Isaacson speaks with him on what chaos theory can teach us about the way the world
0: really works. Thank you, Christian and Brian Klass. Welcome to the show.
3: Thanks for having me here
0: your new book is called fluke uh, The subtitle is chance chaos and why everything we do matters. Let's start by just explaining what is a fluke? A
3: fluke is a highly consequential event that happens by chance or is arbitrary or random. And so I argue in the book that our world is shaped by these and our lives are shaped by these much more than we imagine, but we just pretend otherwise, because it's much nicer to imagine that we have neat and tidy stories To make sense of our world and our own lives
0: well one example i think you use is the arab spring a tunisian uh, uh, vendor explain how that does that
3: yeah so you've got a a sort of moment in the middle east in late 2010 where there's a lot of people who are pretty angry at their dictatorships and all of a sudden one of those angry people decides to light himself on fire in central tunisia Mohamed Bouzizi. and this spark creates a conflagration that basically consumes the entire Middle East, leads to several regimes collapsing, and then also the Syrian civil war, which hundreds of thousands of people died in. And so when you think about this, you think about, you know, would this have happened but for this trigger in Tunisia? And I think this is the sort of way that our world works. It's partly between order and disorder, where you have these trends and these sort of aspects where you get towards what's called the tipping point or the edge of chaos, and then a single thing can tip you over that edge and create an extremely consequential event that shifts how the world works.
0: Well, let me push back on talk about things which you address in the book, which is, and let's take the Arab Spring. Uh, The world seemed ready for that. As you said, there was all the kindling was there for it. Had that one Tunisian event not have happened, Isn't it likely that there still would have been an Arab Spring and that these random events actually don't cause things? They're just like the tiny spark and there'd be other sparks?
3: Well, I don't, I don't think so. And I think the nature of the spark matters as well, right? So the visceral nature of this protest did create protest movements in Tunisia, and then those spread further, right? Now, what you are right about, and this is something I do explain in Fluke, is that there's this thing called self-organized criticality, or the sandpile model, which I'm borrowing from physics, which helps make sense of how these triggers or avalanches can be produced. So if you imagine sort of adding a grain of sand to a pile over and over and over, eventually that pile of sand gets so tall that a single grain can cause an avalanche. And what I'm arguing is that in the Arab Spring case, for example, the grain of sand, the sand pile was really, really tall. So it just took that one extra person to cause the collapse. Now. I think there's a problem here because I think that we have designed a world that is particularly prone to these avalanches because the sand pile is extremely high by design. And what I mean by that is that you have this sort of system that operates with optimization and efficiency as its main priorities. And this means that we have no slack in the system. So you know, a couple of years ago, a gust of wind hit a boat in the Suez Canal and twisted it sideways. And it caused over $50 billion of economic damage, which was never possible for one boat to do in the past. And so, you know, I think what we're doing is we're basically creating a world in which those avalanches, those sparks, as I put them before, are are more consequential and more likely to upend our social lives.
0: So is the problem uh, the sand piles that have become precarious, or is the problem the one grain of sand that happens to come in?
3: So it's both, and they couldn't exist without each other because, you know, if you have somebody light themselves on fire in Norway tomorrow, it's not going to cause a revolution because the system has slack and people are happy, right? Now, in, in the Middle East, there are people who were unhappy with their dictatorships for a very long time, and there weren't mass protests and there weren't large-scale civil wars, and then all of a sudden they happened all at once. I, I go through an example in the book of something similar to explain this dynamic of the onset of World War I, which many historians have debated, And I talk about the sort of, you know, the the standard story is the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand, where he sputters to a stop right next to his assassin. And that's the fluke that triggers the war. Now, of course you had to have all sorts of other things in place for that to actually happen. This series of alliances that made it more likely that a single death could actually create a world conflict. But I also talk about in the book how he almost died in a hunting accident many months before that, when he was in England. And if that had happened, I don't know if World War I would have started, but I certainly know that it would not have happened in the same way. And I think what we often do is we have these sort of binary categories, the war starts or it doesn't. And actually what I'm arguing through chaos theory is that the way the war starts is also important. So if it's triggered by an assassination or if the guy gets killed in an accident, in a hunting accident, that will affect world history. And I think instead what we try to do is impose these really you know, sort of storybook narratives on how the world works and they write out this noise that I actually think is highly consequential in how the world works.
0: One of the other examples you use is Donald Trump being at the White House Correspondents' Dinner and being the subject of a Barack Obama scathing, comic routine, and so he decides to run for president. Using that type of, okay, that was a fluke that had lots of consequences, doesn't that have a bit of a danger of people like me who was covering things at the time? We missed something big in this country, which was a deep resentment that was going to lead to somebody like Donald Trump. And for that matter, Donald Trump was somehow or another going to get in this race one way or the other. Don't we miss the importance of the big forces when we look for the flukes?
3: Yeah, so I, I agree with your highlighting there because I think that one of the things that we do need to be aware of is how high the sand pile is to to go back to the previous analogy, right? So yeah. we have an obligation to explain our world with, with what I think are two things. One is that sometimes there is much more arbitrary and accidental forces that do matter, right? And we're, on, we're constantly told to focus on the signal and ignore the noise. And the argument I'm making is that the noise actually has some pretty profound consequences for the way the world works. But it's also thinking about why are we more prone to flukes than we are in the past, right? I think we've upended the way the situation in, in sort of global affairs has used to work compared to how it works today. So for example, When you think about like the vast stretch of human history most people dealt with uncertainty in their daily life they had to deal with the question of you know how you find food or whether you're going to be eaten by a saber-toothed tiger but the world didn't change that much year to year and what we have now is we have a world where you know starbucks is always the same but democracies are collapsing and rivers are drying up and i think that to your point uh, to your question is suggesting that we've created a world with less slack so that you have these long-term trends that create worlds in which flukes can actually have high, high consequences. So if we had dealt with the problem of the lingering resentment in the American public, then Trump might have had a joke told about him. He might have run for office and he would have gotten 0% of the vote. So I think that the combination of order and disorder or flukes and these long-term trends, they're the way that the world actually works. And I think what we do instead is we tend to focus on the sort of big explanations, the long-term explanations for social change. And I think these
0: pivot points that can start with a joke, do actually uh, change the world. You would say that one of the mistakes we make in looking at history or looking at our times is that we impose, I'm, I'm not sure you use the word impose, but we have a narrative arc that we tend to believe in. And that leads us to believe in conspiracy theories. Explain that to me.
3: Yeah, so humans are basically pattern detection machines, right? We, we've evolved to have brains that latch onto patterns. And that's because having a false positive, where you think there might be a saber tooth tiger lurking in the grass when you see it you know, rustling, that's not going to lead to your death. But if you have a false negative where there is a pattern and you don't detect it, so you see rustling in the grass and you don't think there's a tiger there, you will die. So evolution has basically over-engineered our brains to be sensitive to patterns. Now, this relates to conspiracy theories because sometimes random events happen and also sometimes small changes can have really big impacts and our brains are basically allergic to that line of thinking. So when you look at something like Princess Diana's death, which was a, a big moment in British history, there is this sort of resistance to the idea that you have you know, a small banal car accident causing this major event in, in, in geopolitics or in, In world affairs. And the same is true for QAnon. When you think about, you know, conspiracy theories like like QAnon, it's a story that makes sense of this sort of hidden truth, a hidden pattern that you can be inducted into. And the debunkers, the people who tell you facts about the conspiracy theory, they're telling you there is no story, right? And so our brains are much more likely to gravitate towards not just a story, but a really good story. I mean, the story is a thriller, if it were fictionalized. And so I think this is the danger about conspiracy theories is that we tend to make sense of these sort of seemingly unrelated data points with a stitching together that ends up being a really seductive conspiracy theory. And it's one of the reasons why they're so sticky. I mean, one of the problems we have is it's so hard to debunk them because you're telling the storytelling animal, which is what humans are, Ignore the story, there is no story. And I think that's one of the ways that is uh, most useful to think about the, the persistence of these theories that sway our politics and unfortunately creates a real world action based on the lie.
0: When it comes to the reach of conspiracy theories, how does the U.S. compare to the rest of the world? The U.S. has more of a problem with conspiracy theories
3: than other peer countries. Uh, and, and that's because politicians have popularized them more than in other peer countries. So I live in the UK, I, I, I'm from the U.S. And you see a mainstreaming of conspiracy theories within political parties more in the United States um, than, than in the rest of Europe and so on. And so I think this is a danger that does exacerbate the problem when elites or people who are in politics start to peddle conspiracy theories as a way to win votes. And that is a uniquely American phenomenon. Not, that is, that's a phenomenon that's much more prominent in the United States than in other peer democracies.
0: And has it gotten worse in terms of conspiracy theories, or is it no worse than it was during the Salem witch trials?
3: So we've always been pattern detection machines. The difference is how we get information. So when you think about the internet, I think there's a really profound shift that the internet has produced, which has never happened before. So every other form of technological revolution around information has expanded the number of people who can consume information, right? So the printing press, the radio, the television, et cetera, all of that created a larger audience. But the people who could produce information and theories about the way the world works was still pretty small. And you had to actually seek out conspiracism in in the distant past, it was harder to get. Whereas now, because anyone can produce information and it can spread really, really fast on the internet, you have the proliferation of conspiracy theories that we're exposed to more often and algorithms that often amplify them. So a person who would not have sought out a conspiracy theory in the past is now being shown one by design from you know, tech algorithms and so on. And so I don't think it's that we've changed. I think it's the way that our information pipelines operate has shifted, and that's made them more influential in, in modern politics.
0: One of the ways people think about how history changes is partly grand forces, it's partly the role of people, it's partly, as you do in this book, the role of flukes. But there's also, as you describe described in the book, the role of technology. That suddenly movable type printing comes along and you can have a reformation in Europe. Uh, tell me how your book fits into the role of what technology is doing to change our lives.
3: Yeah, so, so technology is a huge driver of change in the human experience. But I think that one of the things that we don't appreciate is how timing of technology also matters, right? So uh, I, I do use this example in the book where I talk about the printing press and how it locked in the English language at this specific snapshot in time. And the language has changed a lot less since then because the technology solidified how the written word had to be printed, right? It became standardized. Now, I think about this a little bit with the pandemic right now, right? So let's imagine that the exact same virus mutated in Wuhan in 1985. The economy would have been radically different compared to how it unfolded in the 2020 pandemic, because working from home on Zoom was impossible in 1985. right? So technology is one of these things that has these grand forces, and yes, there's going to be innovation. Some of them are going to happen regardless because it's just going to work. I think that you know some innovations are inevitable. Fire was always going to be discovered by humans. The timing might've been a little bit different, but the moment of the discovery I think is really important as is the person who discovers it. And I think for example, smartphones would have unfolded a little bit different. If Steve Jobs had not been one of the people who was behind their innovation and popularization popularization. So, you know, I think there's there's a, a sort of interplay between these grand forces, these individuals, these accidents and the moments or the eras in which the technology emerges and all of them matter. I think if you just hold one of them constant, you don't actually have the exact same world unfold
0: one of the great technological forces that's about to hit us or has already hit us is artificial intelligence especially personal ai where uh, everything can be personalized i can use chat bots and news organizations can or people who are trying to run political campaigns can how is that going to fit into your theory
3: Yeah, so I think it's I think it's a danger. And the reason I think it's a danger is, you know, you go back to the philosopher David Hume several hundred years ago, he basically raised this problem of how can you know that the past, uh, the patterns of the past are going to be predictive of the patterns of the future? And that was already something people were worried about with reason in the past. Now I think they have even more reason to be worried about it because our world is changing so quickly. And yet AI is still trained on past patterns, right? I mean, this is the kind of stuff where machine learning is derived from training data. And it says this is how the world works. The problem is you can start to get into trouble, A, if you think that you have certainty in an uncertain world, which I think we do, and AI doesn't solve that problem, and B, if you think that the past patterns will be predictive of the future, and then the world shifts, right? And all of us understand this idea intuitively because meteorologists will tell us, oh, there was a 100-year flood, and we say, okay, why is there a 100-year flood every three years now? It's because the underlying cause and effect patterns have shifted. And so if AI development is not careful to this problem, I think We can engineer a world of false certainty of hubris around these new tools that gets us into serious danger that's avoidable so i I think ai is going to be exceptionally good at solving problems in what i call closed systems you know medical diagnoses for example but it might have some dangers embedded in it with open systems where the past and the future are not aligned and the training data of the past is actually very misaligned with the underlying cause and effect dynamics in a different world that's unfolding
0: as we speak how can an understanding of the role of flukes lead us to have a more resilient society? And let me even add a more resilient personal life.
3: Yeah, I, I like this question because, you know, I, I think differently about the world and my own life having written this book. I I was not the same person three years ago. And the reason for that is because I think I you know, I grew up in the U.S. where I was sort of told... You have to sort of just make your own path. The sort of individualist mindset, the American dream, and so on. And it's it's a culture that is extremely focused on control, right? And I describe in the book how I was living, you know, what I describe as a checklist existence. And I think I think when you start to think about the role of these forces that are sometimes arbitrary, accidental, and random, and also the chaos theory, the ripple effects of our decisions it starts to liberate you a little bit, right? It starts to make you feel like, you know what? It's its maybe okay if I don't have so much top-down control. And, and that's what I've internalized as a lesson from the book. In terms of society, I think the, the the main lesson is resilience. I think that we have the tools to give us the illusion of control more than ever before, because we have so much predictability and stability in our daily lives that we start to think that our world is also stable. And in fact, it's the opposite. The stability in our daily lives is happening at the same time as the world is changing faster and more profoundly than ever before in human history. So in my view, This is something where politicians, economists, et cetera, need to understand that they are creating a world without slack and the flukes are always going to be there. So instead of imagining that we can have this top-down control, I think we have to have a little bit less hubris and also accept the limits of what what humans can and cannot control. And I think that's true for ordinary citizens, uh, as well as for
1: politicians who are calling the shots.
0: Brian Klaas, thank you so much.
1: Thanks for having me on the show. And so interesting to reflect on how all those small chance happenings can actually change our lives. And finally tonight, sing me a song suspended, Piano Man. No, no, that is not Billy Joel. It's the Swiss pianist Anna Roche hanging 32 feet above the ground as dawn breaks in Munich. He's performing a piece that's called Winter Solstice, which he plans on doing every morning before sunrise for more than 100 days, changing the music a little each day to reflect the sounds of nature moving with the seasons until finally the piece will become Summer Solstice, when of course it'll be lighter and a few degrees warmer. That is it for now. And make sure to tune into to the show later this week to catch our interview with the cast of the hit play Kim's Convenience. It's performing to sell out crowds at the Park Theatre here in London. And it's hoping, of course, for a West End run next. And I'll speak to its creator and star Inns Choi, as well as his cast members, Jennifer Kim and Miles Mitchell. We discuss Why the play, which became a hugely successful TV sitcom, is striking such a chord with audiences and how it's also a step forward for Asian representation in the arts. If you remember, not rather, and remember that if you ever miss our show, you can find the latest episode shortly after it airs on our podcast and can always catch us online on our website and all over social media. Thank you for watching and goodbye from London.
5: I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.